Hey, welcome everybody to Spirituality Adventures. We're glad you're tuning into this episode. Uh, we are a viewer and listener supported podcast, so we really appreciate you listening, watching on YouTube. We really encourage you to subscribe to whatever platform you're using. If you're on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, or if you're on Apple or however you listen to a podcast, be sure and subscribe. We greatly appreciate it. Also, make comments if you like it and share it if you like it. We really need people to make comments and share the episodes that you like. And then also, if you're not already a supporter, we really would encourage you to go to spiritualityadventures.com and you can pick a tier and we have bonus content for every type of giver. These are this is a nonprofit, so they're tax deductible donations, but we do provide bonus content for those who uh, are supporters. So be a part of the team, help support Spirituality Adventures. And we're so glad you're tuning into this episode. Hey, folks, welcome to Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for tuning into this episode. We, I've been trying to get Pete on here for, man, probably Ever. for a year. And so we finally made it happen because I usually do Tuesdays. And he can't do Tuesday. So Pete Enns is a uh, professor. I'm also out on parole. So that, that makes a big oh, yeah. difference. So that, makes... yeah, that was the problem, right? <laughs> right. For my theological views. Well, you're hanging out with people that I hang out with if you're on parole. Then. So, uh, <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So yeah. he's a professor of biblical studies at Eastern University, which I, I'm guessing you teach mostly Old Testament. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you always, you can't stay in one Testament ever really, but yeah, basically, basically Hebrew Bible and uh, basic issues of interpretation, but yeah. 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 And did his PhD at Harvard university. Um, mm -hmm. And his newest book that came out last year is called curveball. And I want to recommend it to everybody because I thoroughly enjoyed reading this. Pete and I are basically the same age and uh, mm -hmm. he's two months older than me. And we have, man, you know, some of our journeys uh, crisscross. And so I hope that kind of comes out here as well. Mm -hmm. But Pete, I, I just let you know, I, I was always love, I always loved studying. So after I did my master's of divinity, I, I did a doctor of ministry at Fuller. And then after I did that, I did a, I was working on a PhD in the old Testament at Midwestern Baptist theological seminary mm -hmm. and was down to my dissertation when I went to rehab. And that was five years ago. Right. right. I was studying with um, the reason why I ended up going to Midwestern was because they had two professors there that had done their PhDs at HUC in Cincinnati, Hebrew Union, mm -hmm. sure. which is where, um, you know, Hanan Brickto, uh, I'm thinking mm -hmm. of Palo. Mm -hmm. uh, I know John Walton did his PhD at HUC in Cincinnati. Yeah, that's a good place. I mean, it's, it's a one of many, many Christians I know have gone there to do their PhD. Yeah. yeah. So I had two guys who had graduated from there who were brilliant in Hebrew that were 15 minutes from my house. And so I thought, well, heck, I'm yeah. going to study with these guys. And so, mm -hmm. so I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, but it exposed me to all kinds of stuff that when I went through my darkest days feeling like an atheist 2019 it gave me plenty of fuel to rethink god <laughs> to rethink right. all kinds right. of stuff right and right. you've done a great job so guys folks i want to highly recommend curveball 
to all of you who I still have a lot of evangelicals who listen to me, Pete. So I'd really encourage folks to, to read Curveball mm-hmm. if you're from an evangelical background or if you're from any kind of background that really valued believing right doctrines and the Bible had all the answers and then how that lines up with life and brings curveballs into our life and changes mm-hmm. and changes our theology and changes our views of God and changes how we relate to the Bible. All of that stuff is in this book and you, it's great. It's a great read. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So let's get a little of your story first. Where were you born? Where did you grow up and tell us your religious background? Um, I was born in, in New Jersey, in, in the northern part of the state. My parents were immigrants. Uh, long story short, they settled there, met on the boat, got married, and settled in northern New Jersey, as many immigrants did. And um, I, you know, was raised in a in a home that you know believed in God, and and you know was you know I'd heard about Jesus and things like that but it was never it was never any formal education in Christianity so I didn't have uh, I mean they weren't fundamentalists because they were Germans you know there's there European Christianity is not not like here you know um so I I grew up without some of the baggage I think that many people have had to struggle with and I'm, I'm aware of that it's easier for me to get over some things than others who were raised in a certain way um and but they did send my sister and i have one sibling to uh, a lutheran uh confirmation class which was two years every wednesday after school we would go and learn about the lutheran faith and uh the one thing that came out of that is i memorized creeds and i still have them you know in my head and that's it, it was a nice formative uh experience in retrospect i didn't like it then what, what seventh grader likes to go to these things but um, it was a formative experience for me and, and in a liturgical environment because, you know, they're Lutheran. So, um, so yeah, and that's, I mean, that's the long and short of it. And uh, I had um, a conversion experience in high school in a Nazarene church, which is a long story. Um, I had then uh, sort of a movement towards Calvinism uh, in my early 20s because of a church we were attending, which was a really good church. And uh, and I learned a lot there, and that sent me to seminary a few years later. And while I was there, it didn't take me long to realize that I sort of liked studying this stuff and um, knew that I'd want to go to graduate school one day, and it wound up being Old Testament, because as one of my professors told me, you know, Pete, think about it, there was like four times as much material, and there were fewer scholars. So you might want to just focus on the Old Testament. <laughs> Which is, you know, partly the story, but it's also that's the part you, you, you know, I wanted to wrap my head around it, and just how does it work? How, how is this relevant for today? How is it um, th- this dark, almost mysterious part of the Bible for many people? You know, you read the Psalms and things like that, but you know, who really reads the prophets or Leviticus? And I wanted to understand what's really the substructure of the Jesus movement in the right. first century. That's really what I want. I wanted to understand it. And, um, you know, that's, that was really a thing. I was really driven internally to try to understand what I said I believed. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. Where did you go to college? I went to Messiah College, which is in central Pennsylvania, okay. yeah, near, near the capital of Harrisburg. And then you played baseball there, right? I played baseball there, right. 
on scholarship? Is that an NAI or Division three? No, this Division three. There are no scholarships for sports in Division three. Okay. Um, so I just I went there. I pitched for the three years that I was there. I, I, I went to Rutgers University my first year, which is a state university of New Jersey, and I it's too big. Didn't like it. Went to Messiah. So and then, where'd you do seminary? At Westminster Theological Seminary, which is outside of Philadelphia. Yeah. And I was a student there, and that's I actually taught there for um, 14 years um, after I uh, got out of Harvard. Okay. And then you went to uh, Harvard. Who right. did you um, – I, I know Waltke did his uh, – he, mm-hmm. he, he did his stuff at Harvard. I he did his PhD there, right? Yeah. Yeah, because I had to do a paper on the Samaritan Pentateuch. And yeah, that's his thing. Whole, right? I found his dissertation, right? So, yeah, right, right. <laughs> But um, there's some other great professors there at uh, Harvard, too, especially in the Old Testament. I'm trying to pull Kaiser. Did Kaiser end up there? And I'm trying Walter to. Walter Kaiser. I, mean, I don't remember. Um, I know that, I mean, the teachers I had there were amazing. You know, um, who did but, you do? You know, your, a lot of people have gone there, but. Um, who did you do your dissertation with? Uh, James Kugel. Okay. My two big influences there were, were both Jewish professors, James Kugel. And John Levinson. And yeah. there are others, uh, Peter McInnes, Paul Hansen, a few others that I had classes with that I liked a lot. But they were the most because they're the ones who got me thinking hermeneutically and theologically yeah. without even using the words. Right. I really yeah. like Levinson stuff, you know. Um, He's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, cool. So then curveballs, curveballs. So you, you at least had enough footing in the confessional church mm-hmm. to have some some fairly rigid beliefs that would kind of be like growing up evangelical a little bit wouldn't you say especially with your conversion in the nazarene world yeah i mean the thing is that that happened when i was like 16 and so i wasn't really thinking theologically but what happened to me there was i started having questions and it wasn't the kind of place that really even thought about what do you mean questions? Questions about what? How can you possibly have you know questions? It's so obvious. So, um, I, but I didn't feel restricted by them, and I I just didn't stay there. You know, I was there for a few years, but then I left. And the Calvinist world that I went was uh, a part of. What I liked about it so much was that there were certain questions being asked, and there was doing deep dives into books of the Bible or into things like that. Um, and of course, you know, as time goes on, you know, you realize that, well, that was, it had its own kind of a narrowness attached to it. Um, and I just, you know, I just began reading things on my own and it made me realize there's a big world out there of how people think about this stuff. And it was very intriguing to me. It was never, rarely was it really a threat to me. I mean, some things are, some things are like, oh gosh, I'm not ready for this. But for the most part, it, it just expanded my thinking and it made a lot of sense. And, you know, to me, that's I'm just interested in truth. And I know that sounds really manby pamby, but that's that's that is the case. I want to know what's true. And even if I can't tell you, I think this is true. I'm at least trying to pursue it and trying to understand truth. And that's that really drives everything that I do. And um and that's why I don't always have patience internally with um, uh, with what I perceive to be simplistic answers to difficult issues. Yeah. 
You know, I, I don't know. So I was rooted very strongly in the evangelical world, but yet studying mm-hmm. with, you know, super liberal scholars and, um, you know, reading everything. And I loved reading everything, but then I always tried to think it back into sort of my more evangelical-centered worldview, right? So I always believed in evolution. I always tried to, you know, massage that back into a fairly conservative kind of view about Jesus and the Bible, I would say. You know, like my favorite guy of late would have been N.T. Wright, you know, like that, Mm -hmm. that kind of... You know, I would say he's on the more progressive side of whatever. Yeah, for a lot of people, I mean, being a British evangelical, he's very different than an American evangelical. And he he has latitudes that, um, you know, Michael Bird is another one, a New Testament scholar who does some writing with Tom. They they have more latitude, much more latitude than American evangelicals. I still think there's a ceiling there that you hit too quickly. And that's my opinion. You yeah. know, that's my judgment. It's just my opinion. I think, you know, if, if you take that line of thinking further, you're going to break through that glass ceiling and you're going to see things differently. And yeah. Um, but anyway, when I was doing my Ph.D. at uh, or working on my Ph.D. at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So, you know, like a conservative Southern Baptist seminary, they called me a British evangelical is what they called me. Oh, that's nice. I guess <laughs> that's before I, I that's. <laughs> and that's before I went through what I went through the last four or five years, right? Now they right. they just would like. Were they trying to be nice to you, or trying to be mean to you when they said that? Nice, I think nice. nice. But some probably, maybe not. You know, so well, that's probably as absolutely liberal as you could get. Yeah, to be called a British evangelical, that's like that's barely inside the camp. That's what they called me. So, yeah. <laughs> but right. okay. even some of that blew apart on me in the last four years, right? So, sure, sure, um, sure. But at any rate, so this curveball analogy, I want to just stick with that through the rest of the interview because mm-hmm. you, you, you didn't, you weren't always trying to bring all of your knowledge back into a more conservative framework. It doesn't sound like you, you allowed it to push you you allowed all these curveballs to push you further, further into discovery of truth versus some, some box that you needed to fit everything into. Is that true? Um, or I'd, like to think, I'd like to think that's true, but I don't think that it is. I think the, I mean, the thinking that you read in curveball is not where I was say 40 years ago or even 30 years ago. And, you know, when I was, uh, especially teaching at, at Westminster Seminary, which is a conservative Calvinist institution, which was inerrantist, but they allowed you to think about what that meant. But they weren't literalists inerrantist, but a different kind of inerrantist. But you know, after being in, in you know in a large secular research institution, and then going back to teach there, I had a whole different framework for thinking about why the Bible looks the way that it does. And so I would, for my students' sake, I would, and I, I was I was thinking this way myself because I couldn't even allow myself to get in touch with what's deep down because it's too threatening. Mm. You could lose your job, right? Yeah. And I'm not, I wasn't being duplicitous. It just That's just the psychological and sociological mechanism that happens to people in that situation. But I, um, I would say things like, the Bible's inerrant, but whatever is in there is fine, because that's what God wants, including things like historical contradictions, including things like 
um, moral problems with God's own actions in the Bible, right? And well, God wants that there um, to to push us to think, which is actually a very ancient Christian and Jewish view. These things are there, and they're so ridiculous. They're meant to incite you to probe deeper and see meaning that's beneath the surface. That's sort of where I was with some of those things. Um, but I mean, the truth is, I just in in retrospect, I know what I was doing there. But since having left there now about 14 years ago, um, I just a whole other sector of my brain started working. And I don't find those explanations to be pushing me towards truth. I, I found that pushing me towards maintaining a system of thought that um, that I think could be critiqued pretty pretty easily in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have a shame factor to, you know, some of that deconstruction where like for me, you know, I'd taught people for so many years, you know, led people to Christ and taught them about God and, and how to, how to hang on to God, even through suffering. Right. And, and yet when I went through my deepest, darkest thing, if, you know, in 2019, I, I could, I didn't feel like I could hold on to, I had to let it all go for a season, even though, and then I felt shame about like letting go of like just re-examining everything. I felt even shame about yeah. that process sometimes. You know what I mean? Cause I'd been a leader in, you know, right. people come to Christ and, and then all of a sudden myself, I, I didn't feel like I could hold all the pieces together. You know, right. did you have right. any kind of shame attached to that, that ev evolving of your thinking and, Theological beliefs about God. That, I mean, that's a really good question. I, as you're asking it, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, I've never really asked myself that question. Hmm. And I imagine there are probably, I, I've had in my mind, for example, thoughts like, I'm thinking the very thing that they warned me about thinking years ago, if you do that, you're going down the slippery slope. I'm like, well, whatever slope I'm on, this makes perfect sense to me, you know? So there's a little bit of like um, uh, people from my past sort of calling me out on things that we knew this was going to happen to you, right? And there's there's a little bit of shame in that, but it's not the kind of shame I think that you're talking about. Yours is a different kind of shame. And for me, I, you know, when I was questioning everything like you were, you know, I had that same what I call my 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 season of atheism, and and it, it's it was legitimate. It wasn't like, you know, a phase I went through, and now I can say I defeated atheism or some such nonsense like that. It's just nothing made sense to me, mm. and I didn't feel shame. I felt weary, and I felt sad. Actually, that's what I felt. And then things just started. You know, long story short, things started. Um, building in a different way than I had ever conceived of and influences I never would have thought would be influences that led to a real reconstruction of things that's much more open and much more expansive and not evangelical. I mean, I have to say it's, it's, I, I don't, I don't see myself theologically as an evangelical, even though, you know, I have truly many evangelical friends. And I'm not just saying that I do, and we get along great. I just don't see myself as as fitting there. Yeah. When in in the Curveball book, you mentioned a time when you were sitting in your basement for three and a half years trying to piece together a living 
kind of by yourself. Yeah. That was that kind of your dark night of the soul that three years in the basement. And was that, were you, I'm curious, I don't know how much personal information you want to, cause you didn't go into much in the book. I was wondering where were you married? Did you get divorced? Did you, did it, you know, no, we're a- married. Yeah. No, um, and um, you know, my kids at that point were when this started, this was in 2008. Okay. Um, and that, and I started teaching at Eastern university in 2000, in January of 12. Okay. So it was basically three and a half years of um, cobbling together a living. Um, that's the period. If some of your, uh, you know, your 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 listeners know the story, uh, I worked with the Biologos Foundation, uh, which is a science faith kind of thing. Yeah, I'm a big. I did that for about a year, year and a half. Yeah, yeah. so I did that stuff. I adjuncted whatever. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was that was a, a difficult period. That's when. I was really alone with my thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember like, um, and, and my kids were older, you know, they're essentially out of the house at that point, uh, except for one. And I just remember like once just lying on a sofa. I'm not sure if I haven't said this in curveball, but lying on a sofa in in my study in the basement, which has no natural light, which doesn't help, by the way, you need natural light not to go off your rocker. Um, but I'm, I'm lying there and I'm th- thinking to myself, just getting very sad and melancholy that I, I'll never celebrate Christmas again. I'll never sing a Christmas carol. You know, I'll I'll never do those things I've been doing most of my life and needing to let go of all that. And that was that was sort of frightening, but also just very sad for me, you know, and, and I didn't know what I was believing or thinking because when, you know, this is the issue with people who leave some form of a, of a conservative iteration of Christianity, call it evangelical, call it neo-Calvinist, call it fundamentalist, whatever you want to call it. Conservative. The thing is, at least they give you a structure. Yeah. That you're supposed to sign off on. As long as you sign off on it and not not interrogate it, mm-hmm. everything makes sense. Right. It all falls into place. And you've got a social structure to support you. Yeah. When you say, and again, I, I think I did mention this in the book, but when you say, I don't want people telling me what to believe. And then it actually happens. Mm-hmm. It's like it's more than you bargained for. You know, it's like you're on your own at that point. Except for some internet friends or things that I read or, you know, people I know from a distance and got to know who helped me understand, you know, Thomas Keating or Richard Rohr, things like that. I mean, just, then it's like then things started falling into place a little bit differently. Right. But um, that was that was definitely that's when I was introduced to the dark night of the soul. Yeah. By others I said, you need to read this and that. I said, OK. Yeah. Interesting. I, in 2019, when I was at my worst and didn't even want to live really, but you know, Uh, a friend of mine mailed me a Richard Rohr book called falling upward. Yeah. I wasn't even reading. I wasn't doing any, I, I, I was just trying to survive and uh, Mm -hmm. I read it and loved it. And then, and I have friends that know Richard. So then I started hubbing around the Richard crowd that got me to Brian McLaren Brian got me the right. Wild Goose Festival a couple of years ago, you know, and then right, yeah, and that's been expanded. And I actually saw you. I was sitting in the crowd, uh, not last summer, the summer before last. Yes, yeah, two summers ago, right? Yeah, 
And uh, uh, I was sitting there listening to Pete and I was like, God, I got to get this guy on my podcast. You know? <laughs> so here we are. Here we are. <laughs> um, so curveball history is one of the big ones. You, the way the Bible talks about history yeah. versus the archeological evidence of, you know, like you brought out, like, I remember studying my PhD and I was like the first time I thought, Oh, I always thought that the first six chap, well, the first 11 chapters of Genesis were mm -hmm. basically like sort of, you know, mythological truth, you know, uh, trying yeah. to describe things that are not history, but prehistory right. stuff. But then I thought once you hit Genesis 11, you kind of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, mm -hmm. you kind of get into some, some real history. But yeah. as you, as you unpack all of that, from archaeological and other resources outside the Bible, all of a sudden you're like, huh, is all of this mm -hmm. fictional history, you know, right. kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And then, then you get into the science side of the Bible. And so one of two of the big curveballs when you're, when we're reading the Bible and trying to make sense of it in today's world is its treatment of history and its treatment of science. Talk about those two. Mm -hmm. balls, which is your book, by the way. So I'm, I know those are pretty much yeah. questions. Well, I, I would say I would put it a little bit differently. I would say that it the Bible doesn't treat history or science because history, as we think of history, was not the way they thought of it. Right. So so I don't want to I, I know what you're saying. The, yeah, the yeah. question is fine, but I'm just I want to nuance yeah, it a little bit. Yeah, change the question for me. I don't want people <laughs> to think that. Well, our knowledge of what history even is, of course, everyone's always thought that. You know, the biblical writers clearly did not think of history the way we do because of how they wrote it and how it's perfectly fine to have contradictory historical statements living next to each other. I mean, sometimes literally living next to each other in some passages in the Bible. And so their view of history is different. So I would say that I... I was learning to understand what they were doing mm. when they wrote about David or the exile or Moses or anything else. And science, um, you know, in a strict sense of the word, didn't exist in antiquity, at least not in this part of the world. Maybe the Greeks, you know, a few hundred years later, but um, it's, it's a different world and they have, explanations for physical reality that are rightly mythical or folkloristic mm -hmm. and not what we would call scientific. So mm -hmm. I don't feel the need to cram, you know, the big bang into Genesis chapter one. Right. 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 Um, I don't, I don't need to find a way to reconcile the Adam and Eve story with evolution. Because I really think they're speaking a different language entirely. And, and so I read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 and, and all of the rest of the primordial history, as it's often called, mm -hmm. as ancient Israelites navigating their own existence as people who have this God that they called Yahweh and, and how they describe that in their context. Because all of those stories have an ancient context, and they're saying something that distances them from others around them. And I'd say primarily the Canaanites and the Babylonians. Those are probably the two big ones. 
And so that's how I look at this stuff. You know, I, I try not to, I try to suspend, and I think I can suspend my own notions of what it would mean to write a book about creation. And it's, it's just not what they were thinking. It's not what they were assuming. So I need to understand as best as I can what they're writing, which is to say, it's all about genre identification. You know, it's like, what is the genre of this material? And to say, well, it's, it's history. And I hear people say things like, well, you know, Genesis 1 to 11 has to be historical because the kind of Hebrew, the Hebrew style, the narrative Hebrew style is continued on in the Abraham story and beyond. And we all know that's historical, right? The, the flip side of that is like, well, no, you're making an assumption there that it's historical in your sense of the word historical. And you're actually making a case that the whole thing is not historical in the sense that we understand it because the story, the mode of the story, the, the, the kind of writing and the Hebrew style, those things are consistent for the most part, consistent throughout the book of Genesis. And, you know, it just, it, that sword cuts both ways. Mm. Yeah. I, 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 you know, I've liked, I've directed a lot of people at John Walton stuff on mm -hmm. just trying to get into the ancient cosmology and the, the minds. Yeah. I don't know if that's, if, if you, well, I, I think John is brilliant. I, I like John a lot. And but the, the, the problem I have with John and with other people I would call very learned people, but still evangelicals anyway, there are right. friends of mine, Trevor Longman, for example, is a friend of mine. Yeah, yeah. We, we talk about this stuff. Right, right. Um, I think that like John is so good at explaining the ancient Near Eastern context. He's so good. He's pedagogically very, very good. But he hits a ceiling very quickly and won't go beyond it, even though I think the argument that he's amassed demands that you take that next step and go a little bit further. Yeah. Right? I'm with so you. for I mean, for example, his um his lost world books, yeah, yeah, you know, which, which are nice books. I, for me, and I, I mean this as a compliment. John's books for me are like gateway drugs for people who are coming out of a literalist, fundamentalist yep. way of thinking. Yep. Think, well, there's a context here, right? Yeah. I think what John does is like the beginning of a much bigger process, which is really a rethinking what the Bible even is and yeah. what it's there to do, right? right? And and so when you get to when you get to talking about the Adam and Eve story, for example, and John has these propositions, you know, he has his in these books, he, he divides it into little propositions, and then, you know, he'll get to how Adam is, you know, it, it makes sense in the ancient world, but then you move right to, but he's still historical. Mm -hmm. Why? Yeah. Why is he still historical? What? What's driving us to say that is not really the, I think, in an analysis of the data, it's more a, 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 a theological dogmatic necessity mm. to, to be able to say things like this. So, so I don't think Adam is in any way, shape, or form a historical figure. I think he's a I, mythical figure. I, I think the writer is going to great pains to tell us that by putting a talking snake in there and a tree with magic fruit in it, right? I, this, to me, those are genre clues. Yeah. And the holding on to the historicity of that in our modern sense right. is really driven by, I'd say, essentially inerrantist dogmatic concerns. Mm-hmm. And, and once you see, once you give that up, you give up everything. 
Well, maybe yes, maybe no, but that's not the point. The point is you want to be tr as truthful as possible to this text that you're reading in front yeah. of you. And I, I'm just not sure that an evangelical approach to these chapters brings us towards understanding the chapters. It just gives us a, a more sophisticated apologetic. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, so us modern people who grow up in modernism, you know, mm -hmm. assume that the way we view history and science is the way the Bible writers view right. history and science. And when you dive into the Bible, you're reading a pre-modern book and, and yeah. And then knowing mm -hmm. that, knowing why we, that's important to understand even the that. The thing is though, these guys I just mentioned, they know that. I know they know it. Yeah. They know that very well, very well, but it, they can't, they can't make the connection. Yeah. But you know, like, you know, my, in my old days, if I'd have talked about liberal scholars, I mean, they took modernism and did one thing with it as they looked right. at well, and then we have our conservative scholars who took modernism and did another thing with it. Right. Exactly right. Yeah. And neither one of them, I, I haven't found completely satisfying. I, and I like, I like where you're going because I've rethought the Bible too, especially with all the PhD work I did. And mm -hmm. as I studied Midrash and how that functions, all of a sudden mm -hmm. this, and you've brought it out well, you, you brought out the, quadru the Wesley quadrato, quadrilateral, quadrilateral yeah. and the experience, tradition, scripture, uh, and how we, all of that shapes the way we read. And it's a tricycle moving. You use Richard Rohr's analogy there mm -hmm. and um, how it's a, like when we talk about what's biblical, I love the fact that you, you brought out the Israel means wrestling. You brought out the Jacob story and like mm -hmm. that's a part of being biblical is questioning doubts, questions, and disbelief are actually a part of the faith journey that are all in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, into the Bible, like ingredients, you can't get rid of them, you know, and, and to minimize that stuff, I think is unfortunate and to minimize the fact that authors have different views on the very same subject, like, oh, I don't know, the entire history of the monarchy, read Chronicles versus Samuel Kings. Right. It's like it's an education into, it, it realigns the discussion, what is the Bible? Mm -hmm. What is it there for? Right. And it's not the code book that um, God gave us and it's pure and there's, yeah, it's written by humans, but they had no influence in it, really. It's just sort of from God's head into our head. And um, that kind of stuff, actually, at the end of the day, that can breed a lot of crises of faith for people who then take the time to really study this stuff. And you realize, you know, this is complicated. There's a reason why there are seminaries and yeshivas and people keep writing books and thinking about this stuff, because it's it's not that simple thing that is it's sometimes uh, you know said that it is it's it's more complicated and and i think i would expect that of a holy book to be complicated mm. to be mysterious to be something that requires our full adult attention mm. Mm. yeah you know the only bible books i read in my darkest moment were job and the psalms of lament <laughs> yeah <laughs> And I, and I, yeah. I liked Job just because he ends in paradox and mystery, you know, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that fit where I was, where I was at, you know, mm -hmm. so I was mm -hmm. like, I just started picking and choosing the stuff that I wanted to, to read when I was. And it's, isn't it great that there's stuff in there, <laughs> yeah. you know, that is like challenges the status quo. 
Yeah. You know? So, oh gosh, Pete, I could talk to you all day and we're running out of time, but um, I'm, I want to dive into, so the history part, I want to get one more thought here. I, as I read like Greek mythology. So if you listen to yeah. John Dominic Crossan, he says like the Iliad is the old Testament for the Imperial Roman theology and, mm-hmm. and Enid, Enid is the, the new Testament, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you read those, there's some history, there's some actual history in it, what we would call history in, in with a modern mind. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of mythology in it, what we would call in a modern mind. Right. Right. And, and then the Bible seems to be almost similar, right? There is some postmodern history sprinkled into the Old and New Testament, you know, mm-hmm. that talks about probably actual people that lived, you know. There oh, yeah, there's no question it does, yeah. There's yeah. some actual history in contained in the Old Testament and actual mm-hmm. what we would call postmodern thinking history, you know, um, in the New mm-hmm. Testament as well. I think Jesus actually was a person. I think there are actually apostles. I think there was actually, mm-hmm. you know, so, but then it's, it's, it's got all this other stuff thrown in there, you know, the supernatural right. and things that are seem folklore and mythological and ancient thoughts mm-hmm. about history and how they viewed the world and all of those cosmological worldviews. And so it's so interesting to try to read through these ancient texts with a you know, mm-hmm. a modern mind. I can't, I can't undo my modern mind. I can recognize modernism and study it and see how it's influenced mm-hmm. me. But when I read these texts, it's really fascinating. You know, right. do you just throw the history part out? Does it matter at all? That. Well, does- I think it matters because it's part of the story, you know, and, and the funny thing is that, you know, modernism for all its faults one thing that modernism actually really does say and has said is that if you understand these texts, you have to try to go back into the past. You have to try to understand the setting. And once you try to understand the setting, you start asking different questions. You start realizing that the questions you're bringing to the text might not be ones that the author is even interested in dealing with. Right. So, but I mean, to your point, um, well, I think history is important. I mean, important for what? It's just important for understanding the story itself, because I do think there's a historical arc. I think that even with the stories that are um, either less historically verifiable or completely impossible to verify historically, you still are dealing with a general historical trajectory. I mean, the stories of the patriarchs, you know, the ancestors of Israel, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac, etc., um, that makes sense in a certain period of ancient Near Eastern history where you had wanderers and um, you had nomads moving place to place and setting up shop eventually. And, and the stories of, of, of these early ancestors of Israel, they sort of fit that mentality, right? The, um, the Exodus story for which there is no direct evidence uh, outside of the Bible at all Um and at best, some indirect correlation, perhaps, maybe, depending on how you look at it. But even that fits into the late Bronze Age collapse and the early Iron Age resurgence when you had a vacuum of power, which would be a great time to leave Egypt. <laughs> you know, our migration patterns are a bit more. 
there, there are ev- archaeological evidence of migration patterns of peoples. Exactly right. Peoples, yeah. Right. Yeah. We, we have we have evidence of the increased uh, hill country settlements in the 12th century and and uh, I'm trying 12th and 11th century which is like the biblical stories like well they settled in the hill country because they could protect themselves there and those chariots those other people had won't matter in the hill country right so there were things that make sense and the 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 basic thing though that I I try to um when people when this comes up and I, I talk about it with people is the the further backwards in time you go from, say, the ninth century, the more difficult it is to talk about history in any way, shape, or form that relates to our views of history. Right. Why? Because it's really only in the ninth century that we find true corroborating evidence between certain biblical stories and other nations, like Assyrians, for example, or Moabites, who actually are doing their own writing, having engaged these Israelites with this strange God named Yahweh or something like that. They mention these things in their own text. So at that point, we're dealing with history at a different level than, say, with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. How much of it is history? That's that's a great question. But you're ask, you're in more historical ground from the ninth century on. The further back in time you go from the ninth century, the more difficult it is. The period of the judges and the settlement is difficult. The period of the Exodus is more difficult. The period of the patriarchs is a hundred times more difficult. And then, yeah, I think you're in the world of myth when you get to the opening chapters of Genesis. That's the, that's the best way I found to describe those uh, periods. Yeah, I'm with you. All right. So thank you. So history, let's jump into quantum physics. Oh, why not? And sure. God, and God. And we, From the we sublime to the few, ridiculous. All right. And we only yeah. have a few minutes left. So, um, but no, I, so a part of my, I was always, I was never a Calvinist. I always leaned toward, um, you know, free will defense of evil. And mm. so I was more of an Arminian, you know, but I yeah. held on to that sort of Arminian perspective on things. Right and Mm -hmm. preach that and help people work through suffering with those kinds of ideas. But for Mm -hmm. me, even that God fell apart for me a little Uh, bit after mm -hmm. when I went through that. And then I, so what's crazy is when I was 18 and 19, a freshly, you know, just saved Jesus guy, you know, in the Jesus movement period, going to Baylor, I was reading Hartshorn and Whitehead Mm. (laughs) at Baylor as an 18, 19. And I remember thinking, huh, this is interesting. It's like God's evolving with everything else. That was my, <laughs> that was literally my 18 year right. summary of process theology. Right. Right. <laughs> and now all these years later, I'm revisiting that, right. Because of the influence of people like you and trip and, you know, trip Fuller, many, right? yeah. trip Fuller and so many process theologians and this idea of panentheism as it relates mm-hmm. to you, you know, you brought out this whole, I loved the way you gave a layman's understanding of quantum physics and quantum reality, re- relationality, mm-hmm. uh, death and resurrection, re- relationality as it relates to community, um, NDEs, near-death experiences. But this vast, vast world that we know from science and from evolution and from cosmology and all that kind of stuff. You bring out all of that and then you 
you, we start, well, then how does God fit into all this? And you landed mm -hmm. sort of the panentheist and that's, that's where I'm at now, you know? Mm -hmm. So now I'm trying to, now here I am 60 something years old, trying to restudy, you know, the panentheists of the world, because that's yeah. the way I can kind of hang on to God. Otherwise I don't think there's a God. So it's this hard to talk about God any other way for me. Yeah, me too. And I'm so help, help my audience understand that a little, like, I like to say deep truth echoes everywhere. And so I think mm -hmm. of that in terms of the Bible, in terms of other faith traditions, and in terms of science and evolution and all that kind of stuff. And for me, like I, that boils down to everything's related somewhere or another, nationality. Mm -hmm. And death and resurrection is a part of the way evolution works. And mm -hmm. community has to fit into that. And a guy, if there is a God, has to fit into the reality of all of these things that we mm -hmm. find through evolution and cosmology and astronomy mm -hmm. and these sciences. Right. You've landed in the panentheism camp. What is that? What's mm -hmm. the difference between that and pantheism? And uh, you've got five minutes to describe okay. it. <laughs> well, <I> mean, <laughs> pantheism is um, the view that God is everything and everything is God. So that tree is God and things like that. And there are pantheists in the world. I'm not a pantheist. A panentheist is that adds is these are Greek roots, right? So it adds this en in the middle. Panentheism n means in, so it means God is in all things, and all things are related to God, and God is related to all things, and related in the sense of God actually being present. And I've been driven to that view because of things like cosmology and quantum physics as have many other people. This is how process theology got started, to try to take into account Einstein and then the quantum revolution and how we understand the nature of reality. So with a cosmos as big as ours, I asked myself, well, where is God? And you can't really say God's up there because there's no such thing as up, technically speaking. And how far up? And it's a very Earth-centered way of thinking anyway, right? It's like very like God's like maybe in the next galaxy. Well, why can't God be at the far reaches of the cosmos? And how does it, it, it does that even describe, does that make sense to think of God as some place? Maybe God is in every place all the time. Well, Christians think that, you know, God is omnipresent. But this is a deeper level. This is this is God's energy infuses every single bit of matter. And matter is good. And so God is in relation to the cosmos that God has made through an evolutionary process. And that, I mean, that connects to me to so many things like contemplative prayer, where you're actually looking to clear out some of the muck so you can see God's presence in you. You can call upon God and, and because you're breathing, you're a human being, you're in God's image, to use the biblical language. It, it's very practical for me to think of God as being totally always present. And my job is to become aware of that, mm. not to call upon a God who's up there someplace and makes cameo appearances. God is deeply invested in the material universe, yeah. right? So that I can't talk about God right now in any other way than in those terms. Yeah. It's been challenging for me because I, I cut my teeth on E.M. Bounds and intercessory prayer and, you know, 
uh, Leonard Ravenhill and revival literature. And, <laughs> and, yeah. you know, the vineyard had this strong idea of the kingdom of God breaking through and able to do like supernatural kinds of things. Right. I've had to rethink all of that myself. And Tom Ward has helped. I, I've become friends with sure. him and I, I love some of the work that Tom's done along these lines. Mm -hmm. Well, sure. what can yeah. God do if God can't do this, 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 and this because of, you know, all the, all these, <laughs> the mm -hmm. way God interacts with the world, right? Um, yeah. He's constantly co-creating with the world, coexisting with the world at every point. Go mm -hmm. so all the way back to the beginning. You've got some kind of mind matter duality, right? At the beginning of, mm -hmm. you know, pre-existing, right. existing somewhere at the beginning of everything, there's, there's mind mm -hmm. and matter. And that mind is, we would call that spirit or God or whatever, right? Right. So a mind that is not connected to material reality, it doesn't need that, you know, to, yeah. to exist. And yeah, it's in the deep, deep waters, but I will get in, but um, man, I could talk for hours with you about this stuff, but I, 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 I ran across in the big book of AA, I, I, I let you know, you know, I've been working in the recovery world for about four and a half years. It was fascinating. I landed there when I was questioning everything. Mm -hmm. And I worked through the first three steps, which are God steps. And, um, it, you know, I, I didn't even know I, I let go of everything. So I'm like, is there even a God? And if there is a God, what is this God like? And can he right. answer prayer or can he not? And all these kinds mm -hmm. of things. And there's this classic Bill Wilson, one of the founders of AA. Yeah, of course. He yeah. wrestled with this czar in the heaven and a God who controls everything. And he didn't want to believe right. And a friend of his, when he was struggling with the God question S said to Bill, why don't you choose your own conception of God? Right. And, and then Bill's was like, it was, it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. And that opened the door for him to not be stuck mm -hmm. in some view of God that he didn't like. It opened the door for him to explore new concepts of God. Mm -hmm. And I, I actually think you've brought out well that the Bible itself allows for that maybe even encourages that kind of exploration of a concept of God that works with all the truth that we know. Mm -hmm. And I sense that's what you're, you're trying to come up with a God of your understanding that fits with all of the knowledge that you've gained to this point in your life. Yeah. And it's, it's not, I, I appreciate the way you put that because sometimes people say, Oh, and you're just looking for a God that you happen to like. It's not that I'm trying to, I'm literally trying to make sense of reality. Yeah. And who of us isn't trying to do that, right? And and so for me, it means being very flexible in my own thinking about what I think God is like. What, what do I even mean when I say God? That's a placeholder. That's just a word. That's a placeholder for a much bigger thing. And I'm very happy to be on a journey of trying to understand and trying to explore and my money is on the creator of the multiverse understands that and is not looking over me and saying, you know, you unrepentant sinner, you're not listening to the literal word of God. And that explains all these things. The Bible is set up to not be looked at that way. Right. It's so diverse. It's, it's contradictory in places, you know, and, and, and a good way contradictory because you're really getting different points of view from different walks of life on the same issues. And, and that, that tells us that that alone tells us that it's okay 
not only is it okay, it's your sacred responsibility to think about these things, about what does it mean in your mind for God to show up here in this situation, right? And that's a huge theological discussion. It is. And that's fine with me. It's huge. Well, I just appreciate that because I've I've had to get rid of the shame and allow myself to say, hey, God would want me to think these thoughts and question these things and mm-hmm. mesh all the truth that I know with with everything I know up to this point and mm-hmm. try to continue to relate to a God if that God exists. Right. <laughs> I would know God. Right. I think you ended your whole book about knowing God, right? Yeah. We, or what we even mean when we say God exists. What does it mean to say God exists? That's that's a more philosophical question, but I think it's a good one because we get stuck on thinking of existence in very human and limiting terms. And that's why panentheism is helpful to me because it talks about existence differently than how you know I might have been raised to think. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for your time, Pete. Um I would, I'd love to pick this up again sometime with you because I could go on forever, but Curveball, I want to encourage everybody to read this. It's really well written. It's easy to read. You don't have to be a, a, a scholar to read this book. You can read it and he does, you do such a good job. Also, Pete has a podcast called The Bible for Normal People. And I have a lot of friends that have been listening to you for a long time, Pete, and they love the podcast. So thanks for the work that you've done there with uh, Jared Baez and mm-hmm. um, teaching it and, and and an author of several other books. So tell people, do you have a website? Is that the best way to? Yeah. I mean, the Bible out? for normal people.com is the best place and the books are all there. And we have classes that we offer. Um, when we offer them, they're pay what you can. I mean, literally, if a dollar is all you have, then give a dollar and then you can be a part of it. Um, and other kinds of, edu- we're sort of an educational arm. That's how we see ourselves. And and we have a lot of educational material there, including a blog and things like that. So thank you so much for being on Spirituality Adventures. Thanks for everybody for tuning in to Spirituality Adventures and uh, see you next time. Thanks, Pete. Thank you. Hey, you made it to the end. Thanks for listening all the way through on this episode. By the way, if you're not already a supporter, go to spiritualityadventures.com, sign up for one of our monthly supports, and you will receive our bonus content. You'll receive lots of interesting information about our guests. Many of our musicians will do special bonus songs and record a song. So I wanna encourage you to do that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Be sure and subscribe. Be sure and share any of the episodes that you like. And be sure and make comments if you like them as well. This helps us uh, get spirituality adventures out there to more listeners, more, more watchers. So whatever platform you're using, subscribe, like, share, make comments. And go to our website, sign up for our team and be a part of the team support. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.